Good morning. I feel very, very distant from everybody here. I noticed when I started um, attending here last summer um, that reform, this church, as, as many reformed churches as I've been preaching around different churches, seat from the back forward. It's, uh, it's, we fill the back rows as much as possible and then work our way up. Uh, this is just an observation. And so maybe it's because I'm a youth pastor, but I like to reward good behavior. And so, uh, Tom, I have a gift for the Cisco's for being the ones that are sitting the furthest forward. Uh, so free stuff for, for you guys. They're right next to you there. Uh, some books and DVDs I'm teaching. Let's give them a round of applause for being good examples. That's wonderful. It's awesome. It's kind of a last minute. I just kind of winged that last part there, this first part. So uh, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Um, I've been... Uh, absent the last few weeks because um, we're planting a church, and I'm the church planting pastor. If you haven't met me, my name's Sean, and uh, we're starting a new church in the community. We're actually doing house churches all around the community, and for the last five weeks, we've been uh, meeting in the basement of the Dutch Village Mall, training some different individuals that want to lead home churches, and so when we begin, uh, our church isn't going to meet together in this fashion on Sunday morning, they're going to meet in homes uh, every week uh, for food and prayer and studying of the Word of God. And we'll come together once a month um, at the Linden Middle School. We're renting the middle school. Um, and we're going to meet there once a month for a larger service. But we're going to try something a little bit different. It's a 2,000-year-old uh, model, and uh, we think it might work. So we're kicking the tires on that a little bit, and we're really excited. So it looks like we'll launch between five and six house churches this summer, and then we're already recruiting uh, people that are interested that want to go through the training in the fall, uh, because our goal is to launch about 40 of them over the next three years. And so we are excited what the Lord wants to do in our community, and, and we're watching people come out of the woodwork that are interested in meeting in this way, and uh, it requires a little bit more give and take uh, on the part of every person that comes, because you're entering into community and relationships. So I would, uh, we would cover your prayers. We're having a celebratory. We finished five weeks of intensive training barbecue at my house tonight. So we're excited about that. We'd cover your prayers uh, as we move forward and as the Lord bonds us together in unity. But uh, Sunlight, you have been uh, the place from which we are being sent. And I'm excited in the years to come as we partner together and work to reach people uh, all across this community, this county, uh, this state, the Northwest, and the world. Uh, I believe that God has some really exciting and big plans for all of us uh, as we journey together. Okay, that's the update. Check. And now, uh, now the scripture. Um, so I'm going to be preaching this week and next week. And I'm going to ask a favor of you. Next week, I get examined in my preaching. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, but I'm just saying it right now. So I expect you to laugh harder next week. And more amens. Mr. Polander, I saw you here somewhere. I expect two amens from you next week. So, uh, so I'm just setting you guys up. This is the trial run, okay? This message doesn't matter. Doesn't matter to any of us. It's a throwaway, okay? Just kidding. Um, I grew up uh, in southwest Washington uh, near Mount St. Helens. And uh, it was... Um, my second birthday, May 18th, 1980, that Mount St. Helens erupted. And so now you know how old I am, if you do the math. 
If you don't do math, then all right. I grew up 49 miles away from Mount St. Helens uh, as the crow flies. Now, I did some Google Earthing this week, and I found that I put a pin right here where I'm standing today, and a pin on Mount Baker, and that's 49 miles from here to Mount Baker. So I grew up this far from Mount St. Helens. Everybody turn around and take a look. It's pretty close. That's pretty close. Now imagine that thing erupting, right? By Acme, okay? And so I was two years old when that mountain erupted. I don't remember much from that time uh, because I was two. But uh, we had a birthday party at my house. My dad, who's in the back, uh, was a Cowles County deputy sheriff, and he was in charge of evacuating a certain part of Cowles County that was up there. And um, I don't remember much, but I'm reminded every year by all of the news stories and documentaries and other things that pop up on my feeds or in YouTube, I'm constantly reminded of the magnitude of which that mountain erupted. Um, Several years later, I was in college and I took a bunch of friends up camping on Mount St. Helens. And we actually camped in this place called Climber's Bivouac. And it's it's just a flat area where people can start climbing and ascending and descending the mountain. And as I'm sitting uh, there one night, I'm looking up at the mountain and half of the sky is just dark, no stars because of the shadow of the mountain, because the mountain stood right there, the silhouette of the mountain. And it was an incredible experience. It was a very moving experience to sit and, and just examine something so powerful, so closely. Uh, it left me with a sense of awe. We hiked around the blast area. We We went through the lava tubes that the mountain created and climbed through caves and got to see some incredible stuff. And you know when Mount St. Helens erupted, it was a 24 megatons of thermal energy. It's like 16 times the the power of the bombs that were dropped in Japan so many years ago. 16 times that, or 1,600 times that. 1,600 times that, 24 megatons. So I'm sitting in the, in, the, in the shadow of this beast of a mountain, and I have a great respect for it. I'm not terrified that, oh, this thing might blow again in this moment, but at the same time, I understand how powerful it is. And it's that sense of awe, that sense of uh, kind of reverence that I want to look at today as we explore Psalm 33. Psalm 33 is a psalm of hope, but it's, a, it's kind of a weird idea. It's a psalm of hope through the fear of the Lord. And so I want to, today, I want to guide us through this psalm. I want to teach Psalm 33. If you have a Bible, you could open it with me. I'm going to read through it. I'm going to teach through it. We should be done in about three and a half hours. Psalm 33, shout for joy in the Lord, you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all of his works are done in it, in faithfulness. He loves the righteous and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap and he puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. 
The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And it is by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love. That he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You know, I'm, I, I love this passage it's kind of long, but I'm going to break it down into some very simple pieces so that hopefully everybody walks away with a little something. But I do really believe that the Spirit of God is here today to minister to us and to speak to us from His Word. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, open our ears and our hearts to Your Word. And may we be people that, that are not just hearers of the Word only, but doers of the Word. And God, may we respond appropriately to Your commands today to your encouragement and your exhortation. And may we go and be transformed as we go into the world and live out your love all around. In Jesus' name, amen. This psalm is a, uh, is a hymn of, of creation, and it's, a, it's possibly a continuation from Psalm 32. At just the beginning, Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So Psalm 32, is, it's a celebration of being forgiven in the presence of God. And Psalm 33 is now a response to that. Uh, there's kind of two overarching parts in this psalm. The first part, just the first three, three verses, is a call to praise. And the second section is the cause of praise. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the scripture and we're going to answer the question, where can we find hope in these days? And where, what is our cause for praise in difficult and hard times? So where can we find hope and what is the cause of our praise in these difficult days? And I love it because it, it doesn't take long to read this passage before you begin to understand that. Psalm 33, verse 4. The word of the Lord is upright and all of his work is done in faithfulness. So one, we can understand that we find comfort in God's word. Can I get an amen? Also, that's a little noxious. I think, it's the, uh, I think we're being monitored by the government. So I apologize for any radio interference that might happen. If that happens again, I'm just going to grab Mike off the stage, though, because it's throwing, it's throwing my rhythm off. Like, I have a thing, and then it goes, and I'm thrown off. So, 
One, we can find hope in the Word of God and in His Word alone. The fear of the Lord begins with awe for God and His powerful Word. Look at this. It says, His Word created everything and continues to order and sustain all of creation. God's Word displays His character and His power. Now, there's this idea when we get into the text here about the fear of the Lord. It's right here in verse 8. Let all who fear the Lord, let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And I don't want you to think of fear as like, a, uh, like oh, I'm about ready to get attacked by a bear or a possum. Both equally as terrible. But I want you to think of it as like what I was describing as sitting in the, the foot of Mount St. Helens or standing 40 miles away from it as it erupts. It's a sense of awe. It's a sense of reverence. It's being overcome and just its magnitude, right? So when you read in the scriptures, the fear of the Lord, it doesn't mean like, oh, watch out. He's gonna strike you down with a bolt of lightning at any moment if you screw up. No, if anything, this psalm is going to be an encouragement to us that we can stand uh, in comfort and in solidity because of the goodness of God's nature. So, my question as we begin the day is, is, as I examine my life in this last year, and I think about all of the ups and downs that we all have experienced and are experiencing. Oh, Tom, are you bringing me? As I think about all those things, my hope is that as I examine my life, that I realize that I have to ask myself this question as well. Am I in the word of God? Am I really leaning into what God wants for my life? Now, this isn't a a guilt statement. This is just a a statement of self-examination. Have I really spent the time in the Word of God? For me, when I wake up in the morning, it's easy for me, and I do it a lot, to open up my phone and see what happened in the middle of the night, (laughs) right? Like, sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night, and I know I should be spending some time in prayer or pulling up God's Word, but I'll pull up my phone because something really important must be happening at 2.30 in the morning that I have to know about, right? And yet, for all of us, this is a reminder, this passage is a reminder that We come to the Lord and his word for assurance and comfort. We don't come to it to get points with him. We don't come to it because it's what we've always done. We come to it because it is living and active. Nothing calms the heart of men and women like the word of the Lord. There's never been a more critical time for us as believers to not just rely on what we know from God's word, but actively spend time seeking his heart for this world through his word. I've been a Christian for a while and I can become really comfortable in my knowledge and what I know. But you know what's funny? Every time I open up the Bible, it seems like God is teaching me something new. I could read the same passage. I've read the book of Habakkuk, for example, probably 400 or 500 times. And still, every time I read that book, it leaps at me. Things stand out to me. Because it's living and active. And maybe today we need to be reminded that in order to find real hope and comfort in this time, it's a return not to other things, but it's a return to God's word. 
The text goes on in Psalm 33, verse 10, that not only can we find comfort in his word, we can find comfort in his will. Look at this in verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Says that we can, we can find real comfort because he is good. He is righteous and he is trustworthy. I love it. He says, uh, it says, he says in later on here that he thwarts the plans of all those who come against him. And so we know that the plans and schemes of the mighty will not prevail except by God's will. And yet the, the last section of this in verse 11, I love this. Uh, or verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Listen to this. The people whom he has chosen as his inheritance. His heritage. So not only can we take comfort in the word of God to bring us hope, but we can take comfort in the fact that by God's will, we are people that hold the promise of him in our hearts. We hold salvation, not of our own merit, but because he chose us. We are his heritage. Not only can we find comfort in God's word and his will, but in verse uh, 13 to 15, we can find comfort in God's watchfulness. Look at here. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men from where he sits enthroned. He looks out. Where is he sitting? Enthroned. What does that mean? He's king. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all observes all their deeds. From the heavens, the Lord searches out and cares for all who fear him. These times, I'm telling you, these times have been so hard. I feel exhausted in the wake of 2020 and 2021. And I found myself coming to a place of addiction to ease. But that has truly made this time so difficult. In the previous Psalm, Psalm 32, it says, I will instruct you to show you the way that you will go. With my eye on you, I will give you counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit or bridle or else it will not come near to you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright of heart. Okay, a little more self-evaluation. If you look back on this year, would you say uh, that you think more of your own rights or the needs of others? Do you value more the opinions that you formed or listening lovingly to those that you might disagree with? Do you hold more tightly to upholding justice the way that you see fit? Or are you dwelling on God's actual eternal promises? We can stand beneath the watchfulness of God because, and we can act lovingly and Christ-like to others because we know that he sees all things. His will guides all things. His word instructs us in all things. And we can find great comfort. Now the next section is a warning to us. 
It says um, in verse 16, the king is not saved by his great army and a warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. The, 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 the warning here is that we must be wary of false hope. I used to speak at Camp Shiloh uh, anybody ever been to Camp Shiloh? Okay, a handful of you, that's good. We used to sing this really obnoxious song every year. It goes, some trust in... What's that? Chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the... Our God. Okay, good job, good job. I'm just testing to see who the real Camp Shiloh diehards are here. There was a song that we always sing, and it was an interesting, it's, it's a weird song because um, I don't think half those kids knew what chariots were. And nobody sees horses anymore unless they live in the county. And so uh, it was a weird song, but at the same time, it was a song that harkens us back to this text right here. Why? Because the chariots and horses were these prestigious weapons in the ancient Near East. And kings often measured their military capacity by how big their army was. How many chariots did I, do I have? How many soldiers do I have? And they would put their trust in those things. For this reason, the multiplication of them was regarded in the Old Testament as an act of misplaced trust. For the Israelite kings, their trust did not come in their chariots and horses. Their trust came in Yahweh, their God. And here David is reminding them to not rely on the things that will fail, but to rely on the one who never fails. What is considered in the heart of having is revealed in the losing of things. And in the same way, we must not put our trust in lesser things or we will be led away in false confidences. Titus 1.17 says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works and to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. As believers, we don't trust in the things that the world trusts in to bring us comfort. All those things are a false hope. We trust in the one to whom is real, the source of comfort, Jesus Christ. A couple years ago, I took some uh, students on a road trip and we went down to a place called Cape Disappointment, which is really hard to sell, by the way, to get students to go. We're going to go to a place called Disappointment. Anyway, we took them down there. It's down on the Long Beach Peninsula. And uh, one of the things that's interesting about Cape Disappointment is that there's a large jetty that separates this little cape from the mouth of the Columbia River where it meets the uh, Pacific Ocean. It's regarded as one of the most dangerous river mouths in the entire world. It's over 2,000 shipwrecks in that space alone. And I decided to take some kids to play in the water on the other side of that jetty. Now, I had some students come, and they brought some surfboards because there's a little bit of a break there. 
And so I told him, I said, hey, guys, you can serve within this cape. But do not, when you go out, you swim out and you surf back. You don't go out and, and linger in the water. Because there is a riptide underneath that if you do not pay attention, will pull you away. And sure enough, I'm sitting on the beach. We're having a fire. We're watching these. I don't think we're supposed to have fires. We were having one anyway. So we're having a fire. We're looking out on the horizon. And I see these boys laying on their boards, sunning themselves. And I'm, I yell at them, hey, guys, come on back. And uh, they don't hear me because they're really far out there. Finally, I yell and I yell and I yell. And they hear me. And they start, they get on their boards, they start paddling. And these two uh, 17 and 18-year-old boys could not paddle against that current, that tide. And the harder they paddled, the more tired they were getting. They would stop and rest on their board, but all that would do was draw them further away. And then they would paddle and paddle and paddle. And finally, they were so far out that they were about ready to pass the jetty into the open water. And so I had to call the Coast Guard. Uh, the Coast Guard base is right on the other side. And so these fools are drifting out to God knows where. I call the Coast Guard. And do you know what the Coast Guard does? They don't send a little skiff boat. They send a ship. It's, a, it's got a cannon on It's a big boat. And they send this monster ship. It's so big they have a crane that lowers down in the water that they have to put the boys on and hoist them back up. Because the mouth of the river is so devastating that they're not even going to take for granted this beautiful sunny day out there because it can change in a moment. And they take these fools and they put them on their boat and they bring them back over. And I have to go get them and, you know, they're looking away in shame. But that illustrates a really, a really interesting principle for all of us. And that is this. That when we become comfortable in the cultural drift of this world and we put our reliance on the things of this world, it will do nothing but pull us away from the safety and security of the Lord. That we, we don't allow drift to happen in our thinking and in our lives. That's why we daily spend time in his word to avoid that drift and to think of lesser things as being anything that's going to provide any kind of hope or promise for us. Because as the passage goes on to say, real hope is found in the fear of the Lord. Psalm 33 says this. Uh, sorry, 33, uh, 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. When he says the eye of the Lord, that means like the hand of God, the blessing of God, the, the, the care of God. He's watching over those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love that God may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Psalm 111 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I go to his word to begin my understanding, my thinking, my processing. I measure everything else in this world, every news article, every post, every idea against his word. And what happens? Well, it becomes contagious. In Acts chapter 9, it says the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace 
um, had peace and was being built up. And they walked in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and the church multiplied. There's no strategy in, in Acts. There's no grand gesture. There's no beautiful buildings, well-located in communities. It's the fear of the Lord that multiplied the church among his people. Deuteronomy 10 says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. God watches over all who live by his counsel. He protects, he rescues, and those who remain close to him. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. So what do we do in response of obedience to what this verse exhorts us to do or what this chapter exhorts us to do. Well, it's beautiful because this Psalm ends with three simple things that are really hard. (laughs) One, we wait on the Lord. Look at this in verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. I listen to a uh, lot of, uh, I listen to a lot of rap music and I listen to a lot of heavy metal. So if you ever want a wild ride, just hop in my car and it'll be incredible. I listen to a lot of everything, but um, one of the rappers I really enjoy is a guy named Shylin, And he, uh, one of his songs, he says, he sums it up beautifully. He says, uh, in the prophet Isaiah chapter 11, we find a prophecy about a savior to come. And it says in verse three, that his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That savior is none other than Jesus Christ who lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law. Jesus feared God perfectly. He died on the cross and he rose from the grave to save the people from their sins so that all who trust in him can joyfully walk in the fear of the Lord forever. That is the kind of confidence that we can have. And we know that Jesus doesn't just call us to do that, but he modeled it for us as well. That the delight of our savior was to walk in the fear of the Lord. And in the same way as we emulate him in our lives, we walk in the same. That did not mean that his life was void of hardship and difficulty. No, he faced the greatest hardship and difficulty that any man that's ever walked the earth has ever faced. And yet he was joyful in his fear of God because he understood the might and magnitude You know, that's probably why the Pharisees and so many other Jews felt so thrown uh, when Jesus came to the scene because they they expected uh, a great conqueror to come. They were putting their trust in chariots and horses. And instead, they get a suffering servant born in a manger. No, these guys, they wanted Alexander the Great. 
And instead, they got a poor baby. God was silent for 400 years before he would walk, before he would answer the prayer of his people. But God was not idle in that time. The work of the Old Testament was complete and sealed, and the stage was set, and God was preparing to get work done. His people had to wait for generations with hope. And so, how do we respond to all that we've read today? Because this perspective should dictate how we live. God's word, his will, his watchfulness is trustworthy and true, and everything else is momentary and will fade away. Well, one, we, we trust, or two, we trust in God's character. You see, it's, it's the character and the nature of God that we can always rely on when things don't make sense. A.W. Tozer says, what we, the things that first come to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so we want to be people that are continually turning to his word and finding hope in him, just like Christ found hope in him. Even in his most difficult time, we can find hope in him as well. We trust in the character and the nature of God. We know that he is good and he's holy and he's loving and he's for us, not against us. And he, he desires to minister and care for the deepest parts of our hearts and soul, ultimately securing for us an eternal place in, in his kingdom forever and ever. And so we wait for the Lord. We trust in his character. And finally, it says uh, that we hope for God's perfect work to be done. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This isn't a time, my friends, for the church to be some sort of militaristic revolution, like Peter drawing a sword when the soldiers came to Christ, only for Christ to heal that soldier and submit to the will of God but as our sacrificial lamb. This is a time for the church to behave like Christ and for the love of others lay down our lives so that we might know the patient, grace-filled love of God. Our mission, my mission, isn't to perpetuate my comfort and my ease. My mission is to live out with hopeful expectation for God to fulfill all he has said he would do. To live as a person of hope, not one who kneels to my circumstances that changes on the whims of the wind. My greatest fear is in this last year, we as Christ Church have gone off script We've been sometimes more noise than hope, and we've loudly perpetuated our own desire for comfort and normalcy and forsaken the poor, the outcasts, and the hurting. We have allowed the message of the gospel potentially to get lost in the noise of our own self-service. And so today, some of us, we come here and we, we have maybe one of two actions maybe some of us here today need to repent for putting our trust in lesser things this past year to bring us comfort and to bring us hope. Maybe we need to come before the Lord and just ask God, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for, for putting my comfort and trust in lesser things. I come to you because I know that you're good and you're loving and I want you to restore in me the joy of those first moments of my salvation. I, I want to gain from you a deeper understanding of your word and I want to experience a joy even in the midst of hardship. Maybe for others of us, we need to come to Jesus for the first time and stand in the awe of his goodness 
and worship him because of his goodness and justness. Maybe it's time for us to return if you've walked away to the Lord because you found yourself spitting out and all the changing ideologies of the world. It's time to come back to the unchanging word of God and his person and his character. I'm going to um, conclude with a quote, and it's by a guy named Walter Brueggemann. Uh, free, uh, I'll give a dollar to somebody that comes spell that for me afterwards. You have to be under the age of 10. You have any Brueggemanns here? Is that a Dutch name? Oh, there we go. Just kidding. (laughs) Thanks, Alan. He says this. The church must endlessly tell its Jesus stories because in these Jesus stories, we behold the glory of of the Father full of grace and truth. The imposition of holiness does not happen in large, grand, religious, magnificent ways. It happens where a son is welcomed home where a neighbor is honored and cared for, where a whore is loved, where a leper is touched and cleansed, where a crowd is fed, where a guilty man is forgiven, where a crippled woman stands up straight and laughs and dances. The claim about the glory of God and Jesus is not a mystical, supernatural voodoo, but it is the confidence of the church that is the life of Jesus. We see all that God intends and wants and acts and asks of us. It is so daily, so concrete, so engaged with hurt, so self-giving. It is the face of this one that dazzles with life-giving light and power. And so we can stand in confidence that the eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him and his power and his might is living and active in us because of the transforming power that is daily in his gospel. So may we leave today a new people renewed in our understanding of God's word with fresh hope and perspective to stand firm against difficult times, changing ideologies, and trouble and strife. And may we turn to the Lord in his goodness and in his peace. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Sunlight Church, for this community, for the people that you have brought uh, into our midst. I pray, Lord, that we would love our community well. I pray that we would be a people that shares the heart of Christ and the love of Christ through our actions and our words. And Lord, may we be set apart to accomplish the very thing that you came to do, which is redeem all of humanity for the glory of your Father, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.